I'm Vernon Mann. It's 1989. Come with me as I set off to cover the Romanian Revolution. I'm not happy. It's December the 17th, our wedding anniversary. Twelve years since Avril and I got married. The foreign desk have not marked the date in their diary. They call me at home. It's all kicking off in Romania, they say. The army has fired on demonstrators in a place called Timisoara. People have been killed. Shit's hit the fan. Looks like Romania's the latest Soviet bloc country about to collapse, like East Germany, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. There's a flight from Heathrow at 13.30, OK? Uh, no, not OK, I think. It's my bloody wedding anniversary. Sure, I reply. Who's the crew? There's an unwritten code amongst us competitive reporters, firemen they call us, that you never say no to any assignment, whether like this one, a call to cover conflict at a very bad time, or just to do some legwork to help out a colleague. To tell the desk that, no, I don't want to fly off to a revolution in a shithole country in the middle of winter, just before Christmas on my wedding anniversary, thank you very much, would not have been great for my career progression. You get some bad jobs, you get some crap ones. You don't plead your granny's funeral, let alone a wedding anniversary. You simply say, yes, that way you get respect for your bosses and your colleagues, and first call on the best gigs. Going to Romania just before Christmas isn't one of the best ones. Heathrow is nearing its pre-Christmas crisis, but we battle through and make the flight in good time. No one's flying to Romania, so we have to go to Belgrade, then Yugoslavia, now Serbia, and drive from there. We take a four-wheel drive. There'll likely be snow on the roads. A couple of hours later, a hundred clicks on through potholes, icy patches and snow flurries, the only car on the road, we get to the Romanian border crossing. It's not busy. In fact, it's closed, really closed, like nobody goes in and nobody comes out. A border guard with a boil on his cheek and a gun in his hand makes that very clear when our sound guy who's driving gets out of the car and tries to argue the toss. The guard jabs him hard in the stomach with his rifle butt. We know no Romanian, he knows no English, so at least we can abuse the shit out of him as we turn around outside his hut and head back to Belgrade. No journalist or camera crew likes to admit defeat, and our company has a reputation for getting into places no one else can. A few years back, when foreign editor, I was summoned into the deputy editor's office to find him puffing on his cigarette and prodding indignantly at a map of the Soviet Union on the wall, at all the communist countries shaded red, all the countries that are hard or impossible for us to get into. Matey, he says, wiping away a tear of frustration, this company has a duty to get into those damned commie places and expose them for what they are, and I assure you of this, one day we bloody well will. Not this time, boss. The border is shut, I tell London, in a call from the airport. I can hear the sigh. I suppose you may as well come back then, says the foreign desk. If Christmas hadn't been so close, they would have insisted we stayed. So, back home, I toast our marriage and look forward to the festivities with our young son and our respective families. On December the 22nd, the phone rings. Please no, I think, as I pick up the handset, but deep down I fear the worst. The border's open now, they say brightly, as if they won the lottery. And this flight at one thirty. I finish with a sigh. You don't have to go, they say, sensing my hesitation. We could probably find somebody else, they say, implying they probably couldn't. No pressure, then. Now, no reporter wants to be known as the one who wouldn't go to war because it's Christmas. 
So I say, it's fine, on my way. I go to tell my wife she'll be having Christmas on her own. Heathrow is humming with pre-Christmas travellers. Roads to the airport are jammed, as is the airport itself. Everyone's going home for Christmas with their families. Just for a moment, I feel sorry for myself. I feel even sorrier when I hear the cameraman's missed the flight. This is a great start. How am I supposed to cover a revolution for television without a camera? I feel like a carpenter without a saw, an electrician without a screwdriver. So alone, I head for what appears to be the start of a revolution. In Belgrade, at the high car queue, I meet a reporter from the Sunday Times. We agree to travel together to Bucharest. At the border, rifle butt man simply shrugs and waves us through. No passport checks, nothing. It's a long drive through the night, uneventful by the occasional skid on the icy highway. The roads are deserted. We reach the outskirts of Bucharest at first light. As we drive towards the centre, the only car about, a giant of a man appears in the street ahead, an agitated crowd gathered around him. He waves what looks like a medieval sword, with a blade a metre or more long. Others carry lengths of wood, one a metal pipe. They're shouting, gesticulating angrily. They want us to stop. They're blocking the road. They have weapons. So we stop. They yank us out of the car, ignoring our pleadings that we're journalists, come to report on their revolution. We're on your side, for God's sake. They don't know what we're talking about. Why should they? We didn't know what they were talking about. Why should we? Swordman points the blade at our boot. We open it. They take our bags and cameras and run off into the side alleys. So much for principled revolutionaries. We're not happy to say the least, but still have passports and cash in money belts strapped under our shirts. We drive on, but after a hundred yards encounter a crude but effective roadblock, chunks of metal and a couple of old cars on the road. We abandon our motor and stride towards the sound of gunfire and helicopters. The main square is a revolution in progress. A helicopter gunship hovers low. A man fires repeatedly from the chopper's open door at people on the street, daring to hope that years of brutal suppression at the hands of Europe's most repressive dictator might just be coming to an end. Not just yet. A man with a shotgun fires at the helicopter to roars of encouragement from the crowd. He falls to his knees seconds later, downed by a sniper embedded in the upper floors of a building on the corner of the square. There were other snipers, more casualties, but no visible police or military presence on the ground. I was witnessing revolution in the raw, history in the making, but I had no camera. I pushed through the mob in a desperate search for anyone with a camera, any sort of camera, but there was nothing. So were the first journalists in Bucharest by a mile, but couldn't capture these chilling scenes on video or film for posterity. This was a day that professionally I'd rather forget, but personally will stay with me forever. In the days that follow, the company send reinforcements, more reporters and cameramen about to miss their Christmases. One cameraman and a producer are trapped at the airport, filming fighting around the perimeter and in the arrival and departure lounges. After 48 hours, they get a message to me saying they've got a lift and we should expect them in the next few hours. Mid-evening, the phone rings in my room, which is a surprise because I haven't managed to get any calls out. All communications had been via the telex machine. It's the producer. He's in trouble. He and the cameraman, hitching a lift from the airport, have been stopped by government soldiers 
and are being held at a roadside checkpoint about 11 kilometres from town. He's allowed one call and has to keep it brief, so he does. He tells me where they are and wants me to come and get him. He says, take it steady, because everyone his end is very jumpy indeed. Two problems. First, there's a curfew. Secondly, I don't have a car. My Sunday Times mate had retrieved his vehicle and driven on to Timisoara. Taxis had vanished from the streets at the first sign of trouble. The only journalists who have wheels are some Eastern Europeans who've driven in from neighbouring Soviet bloc countries and the BBC, who have an office here. I call their correspondent in his room. I explain the situation to John Simpson, legendary BBC journalist. He doesn't hesitate. In 20 minutes, I'm on my way, listening to the grumpy mutterings of the BBC's Romanian driver, who's been dragged from his bed and asked to break the curfew, a crime which could get him shot. He drives at a snail-like pace through the unlit streets, ducking down every time we pass an intersection, sinking his body low into his seat until his head is at steering wheel level. Less of a target. It was contagious. I too began to duck down at every road junction. We're bobbing up and down like fairground ducks. Four men appear in our headlights, one waving a gun, the others their arms. They want us to stop. The driver doesn't need persuading. After a brief but loud conversation, of which I understand not a word, they cram into the back seat and urge the driver on. A mile or so later, they indicate with a jerk of the gun that we should leave the main road and drive up an alleyway. I worry about their intentions. But a half a mile on, they tell us to stop, and without a word, vanish into the night, leaving me relieved but intrigued as to who they were and what they might have been up to. We resume our rescue mission and soon see lights in the distance. It must be the checkpoint. We approach slowly and I spot the producer and cameraman surrounded by government soldiers and a few other armed men in civvies. I get out of the car and walk towards them. Halt! yells an officer with stripes, levelling his pistol at my head, arm extended. He was maybe four yards away and wouldn't miss. Behind him the producer, ashen-faced, nothing he could do. I put my hands up, as you see them do in the movies. They think I'm a foreign mercenary, come to help the revolutionaries. I explain I'm a journalist. The officer listens, the look on his face, one of exhaustion, disbelief. I'm about to reach inside my coat for my passport when another movie moment flashes before my eyes. He might think I was going for a gun. And I remember that rifle-butt man had not stamped my passport when I crossed the border. I'm an illegal immigrant. The lieutenant, for that's what he was, asked me a whole bunch of questions in good English. Where had I come from? How did I enter the country? Who was I working for? And so on. His pistol, all the while, pointing at my forehead. The look on his face leaves me in no doubt that he'd use it. People sometimes ask how I was feeling at that moment. A difficult question. I was scared, I guess, but I was not a gibbering wreck. I didn't get on my hands and knees and beg for mercy. I wasn't shaking with fear. I was having an almost civilised discussion with an armed soldier, and surely, as an officer and maybe a gentleman, he'd see I was no mercenary. If I convince him I'm telling the truth, all will be fine. If I don't, well, he'd probably shoot me. I didn't dwell on whether it would be a painful death, whether it would hurt or not. My life did not flash before my eyes. It's something that's happening. There's nothing much I can do about it except keep talking, which I do. Quiet, he yelled. I stopped talking. 
It goes very, very quiet. The officer stands, arm raised, pistol pointing, and stares hard at me for what seems like a month of Sundays. Behind him, I see the producer look away. He thinks I've had it. But then the lieutenant slowly lowers the weapon, and he and his men roughly bundle me, the producer, and cameraman into their bunker, a small single-storey concrete construction, and lock the door. Our expressions of relief are drowned by screeching car tires outside and automatic gunfire, lots of gunfire. Then silence just for a second or two before the key turns in our bunker door lock. The lieutenant bursts in and angrily throws a handful of still warm spent bullet casings on the floor. Souvenir of the fucking revolution, he sneered. Now go, go. Outside, there's a car riddled with bullet holes, the driver drenched in blood head resting on the steering wheel. They'd shot him for not stopping at the checkpoint. It's Christmas Eve. Maybe he'd been on his way home after having a drink. On Christmas Day, President Ceausescu and his wife Elena are executed by an impromptu firing squad. They've been brought back from a hideout 50 kilometres from the capital, where they'd fled by helicopter. Even after his death, Ceausescu's supporters battled with the army for days in deadly battles around the capital, particularly around the TV station, where one of my colleagues is holed up, getting great pictures. It's reckoned a thousand people died in the revolution. Journalists are amongst the casualties. A French reporter crushed by a tank. A Belgian shot as he delivered a report to camera. A British photographer, Ian Parry, taking his and other photographers' film to the UK, died when his plane crashed 40 miles west of Bucharest. It was, and still is widely believed, to have been brought down by a surface-to-air missile. It's a few days after Christmas. Picture a large children's playing field the size of a football pitch in a Bucharest suburb. Swings and roundabouts and 39 freshly dug graves. Grieving families trooped tearfully into what was once a place of fun to farewell their dead. Only one priest, open coffins, a 15-minute rotation. It takes a few days for people to grasp the idea of freedom. There's a lot of suspicion and still fear, fear of the unknown. We film in the shops, open for the first time since the week before Christmas. Food outlets are mostly bare. We spot an old lady buying half a loaf of not very fresh bread. My interpreter asks her if we can follow her home and talk to her in her apartment. She says OK. Outside the shop, though, we're surrounded and jostled by a crowd who've been watching us filming. One man starts a furious argument with our interpreter. Encouraged by the others, it's getting ugly. I ask, what's the problem? They think you are the security, he says. The secret police, not very popular people. What would happen if I was? They'd kill you, he says. After an anxious while, they accept my innocence and let us go. We walk to the old lady's tiny flat. Inside, she switches on her ancient radio. It's playing Yesterday by the Beatles. For the first time in years, radio stations are playing Western music. And we hope all her troubles will soon see far away. After ten days, including Christmas and New Year, it's time for some of us to be replaced with fresh reporters and cameramen. The new guys arrive in a chartered twin-engined aircraft. We watch as it approaches a snow-covered airport and lands on a barely cleared landing strip. We exchange brief pleasantries with the incomers, who tell us there's a case of champagne on board, courtesy of the editor. So we trudge through the snow to the waiting plane, stow our gear, and, mindful of the plane crash that killed Ian Parry, 
decide we won't open the first bottle till we're out of Romanian airspace. The engines start up and off we go, anticipating our homecoming, looking forward to family reunions. As we approach takeoff speed, there's a loud bang, an explosion, and the plane zigzags off the runway into the snow. It's the scariest moment of the revolution. The pilot, an imbecilic smile on his face, apologises for the rough ride and says snow had probably clogged up the exhausts. He'd check it out and we shouldn't be long delayed. We are furious. You're on your own, mate, we say. You should have checked things out before takeoff. We nearly bloody crashed. You could have bloody killed us. We begin to unload the kit, splitting the case of champagne between the four of us to make it easier to carry. We won't be flying back with this idiot, despite his protestations. Problem is, there are no scheduled flights so soon after the revolution. The airport's closed, except to charters and aid flights. So we could be stuck for a day or two. Still, we're alive and have a case of champagne. One of us spots a BA jumbo parked up in the cargo area half a mile away. Might be a chance of getting home, so why not give it a go? We trek through the snow towards the jumbo. There are no security people to stop us. Turns out the jumbo has been chartered by Robert Maxwell, owner of the Daily Mirror, to bring in food supplies. An obese, dislikable man, he later falls or jumps off his yacht and drowns after emptying most of the newspaper's pension fund. The British Airways guys and the Mirror reps welcome us aboard. There's plenty of room, but no seats, no food, and no in-flight entertainment. Not that we need any. Before takeoff, one of the volunteer stewards goes through the safety procedures as we squat on the floor and open our first bottle of sparkly. He begins well, pointing at the exits and all that, but suddenly collapses in fits of laughter. Behind us, his colleagues have dropped their trousers and are waving their willies at him. It's a very jolly flight. We emptied the case of champagne and a few bottles of wine, courtesy of our flasher friends. At Heathrow, Pistas Parrots, I think the saying goes, were met by an office welcoming party, the editor and bigwigs. Thanks for our great work. Flowers for our wives and girlfriends. Taxis to take us home. And another bottle of champagne each to pass the time on the journey. I thought I might give it to my wife for messing up her Christmas. I don't remember the taxi journey home. Avril said, I was such a mess, she put me straight to bed. Next day, the Daily Mirror ran a front-page story about how they'd rescued a team of top UK TV war correspondents. That's a tabloids for you. That's the end of this story. Thanks for listening. I'm Vernon Mann. Next time, on the fringes of the Iran-Iraq war. Join me then. (laughs) 